Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. Quickly. Close your eyes and think of fur trading in Canada. Think of a company. Chances are the company you were thinking of was the Hudson's Bay Company. It's the oldest corporation in the world and a big part of our history as Canadians. But there's another company though, one that gave the Hudson's Bay Company a run for its money. That company was the Northwest Company and from 1779 to 1821, raising tensions and even leading to armed conflict with the companies. In this episode, we're going to look at this company that existed briefly, but had a deep impact on the Canadian West. While there is mentioning of the Northwest Company going back as far as 1770, the standard creation year for the company is 1779. It was in this year that the 16-share organization was formed. The early years of the company were small in terms of growth, with the company usually made up of a loose association of Montreal merchants. They were worrying about the growing power of the Hudson's Bay Company and its ability to monopolize the fur trade. To compete, they met through the winter and created the company on a long-term basis. The company was led by Ben and Joseph Frobisher and Simon McTavish. Now before we go any further, let's talk about these men. Ben Frobisher was born in 1742 in Halifax, West Yorkshire, and would immigrate to Canada in 1763 with his brothers. The three brothers would begin working in the fur trade and travel along the Saskatchewan River to Fort Bourbon on Lake Winnipeg. Ben and Joseph would help set up the company, but Ben would not live after the founding of the company. He would die on April 14, 1787, just as the company he helped found was gaining power. As for Joseph, he would go on to great success after founding the company. He would become a Justice of the Peace in 1788 and be elected to the first Parliament of Lower Canada from Montreal East in 1792. In 1798, he retired from the company, and Joseph had married in 1779 with his wife Charlotte, and they had 15 children, but only three lived to adulthood. There was also a unique connection to world history with one of their children. The couple's daughter, Rachel Frobisher, would have a daughter named Mary, who would marry Robert Fitzroy, the man who captained the Beagle, the ship Charles Darwin sailed on his famous voyage. Joseph Frobisher would die on September 12, 1810. Simon McTavish would have a deeper impact on the company he helped to found. Born in the Scottish Highlands in 1751, McTavish would find his way to Canada and begin to prosper as a fur trader. He had spent some time as an apprentice with a Scots merchant at New York before seeing the opportunities the fur trade could provide. In 1769, at the young age of 18, he was already working for himself. Three years later, he went into partnership with William Edgar in Detroit. In 1773, he would start working with a new partner, James Bannerman, and they would extend their fur trading operations to Grand Portage on Lake Superior. Knowing that the furs were better in the colder climate northwest of the Great Lakes, he went on an expedition in 1775-76 with George McBeath. The American Continental Army occupied Montreal that winter, which prevented traders from getting their goods to Grand Portage in the summer of 1776. 
This allowed McTavish, with no competition, to obtain furs valued at £15,000 and take them to England to sell. After the Americans withdrew from Quebec and once the Revolutionary War was over, he put together a group of investors and trappers to form the Northwest Company. With the Frobisher brothers, he owned 37.5% of the company's shares, and under his leadership, the Northwest Company was able to expand from Labrador to the Rocky Mountains, and he remained in charge of the company until his death in 1804. Now, back to the Northwest Company. In 1787, things were going well enough for the company that they were able to merge with a rival organization called Gregory McLeod & Company. This brought in several able partners with a wealth of experience, including a man by the name of Alexander Mackenzie. Bringing in Mackenzie was a huge win for the relatively new organization. As an explorer, his exploits were legendary and only rivaled those of David Thompson, who I'll talk more about later. At the time, Mackenzie was working as an apprentice through the company, but in the coming years, he would cement his legacy. In 1788, he would travel to Lake Athabasca and found Fort Chippewan before traveling the longest river in Canada to the Arctic Ocean. He had hoped to find the Northwest Passage to the Pacific Ocean along the river, and since the river went to the Arctic Ocean, he named it Disappointment River, but it was later renamed Mackenzie River. In 1793, he would become the first known explorer to travel across North America, north of Mexico, from east to west. So now, the Northwest Company had earned itself a big steal with the merger with their rival, and they were ready to keep expanding and go against the behemoth on the continent, the Hudson's Bay Company. Following the death of Benjamin Frobisher in 1787, Simon McTavish made a deal with Joseph Frobisher to create a firm called McTavish, Frobisher & Company. The firm controlled 11 of the 20 shares of the Northwest Company. The company was growing extremely large with 2,000 agents, factors, clerks, guides, interpreters, and voyageurs. Further reorganization on the partnership would occur in 1795 and 1802 to ensure new shares for more wintering partners. Now, the company quickly began working on vertical integrations to help corner their area of the fur market. They were able to complete these in 1792 when John Fraser and Simon McTavish formed a London house to supply trade goods and market their furs. At the same time, the company continued to expand its operations to the far north, outside the reach of the Hudson's Bay Company. One of the company's most northern forts was at Great Bear Lake, which was located on the Arctic Circle. The company also began to try and sell furs directly to China. In order to avoid the monopoly held by the British East India Company, American ships were used. Unfortunately, profits were small, and the idea was abandoned after a few years. The Northwest Company also expanded into what would one day be Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Wisconsin. In 1796, to get more involved in the growing global market of the world, they established an agency, albeit briefly, in New York City. No matter how much the company worked to expand, they would always continue to run up to the metaphorical walls of the Hudson's Bay Company, which had a monopoly on all fur trading in the Rupert's Land area. For perspective, Rupert's land had been controlled by the HBC since 1670, thanks to a royal charter from the British government. The area covered all of what would be Manitoba, most of Saskatchewan, and the southern portion of Alberta, and northern parts of Ontario and Quebec. The Northwest Company attempted to get the British Parliament to change this arrangement and allow the monopoly to end, but they failed. One of the company's biggest hopes was that they could at least obtain transit rights to ship goods to the west, and they were needed for trading furs. Simon McTavish made a personal visit to Prime Minister William Pitt, but he was unsuccessful in changing his mind. The company decided after a few years of trying to end the monopoly to make a gamble on a venture. 
An overland expedition was organized in 1803 to travel from Montreal to James Bay, while a second expedition would make the same trip over the ocean. In September of that year, they met at Charlton Island and laid claim to the region in the name of the company. By doing so, they were able to capitalize on the rich furs of the area and cut heavily into the profits of the Hudson's Bay Company thanks to this northwestward expansion. This move caught the Hudson's Bay Company off guard completely and would begin a bitter fight with the HBC attacking the Northwest Company in many ways, and through all of this, McTavish hoped some truce could be negotiated. While the Hudson's Bay Company insisted that the Indigenous come to the forts to trade, the traders with the Northwest Company would journey to the Indigenous themselves. This allowed the Northwest Company to get far more furs than the Hudson's Bay Company, and by 1795, the Hudson's Bay Company was only getting 20% of the furs that their rivals were getting. The company had to build more forts inland to compete with the new rival. Typically, the pattern was the Northwest Company would build a fort, and then the Hudson's Bay Company would build a fort adjacent to that fort. Most forts would be built during this period, including Fort Edmonton. Through the tactics of the Northwest Company, they were able to outperform the Hudson's Bay Company over several years. In one year, the company brought in 160,000 beaver pelts, 17,000 muskrat pelts, 5,500 fox pelts, and 2,100 bearskins. This was four times what the Hudson's Bay Company accomplished. Those who had shares in the company were able to pick up 3,000 pounds per share, and at one point the company captured 78% of the Canadian fur trade, something that would lead to serious problems with the Hudson's Bay Company down the road. With its expansion across the continent, it became the first North American-founded company to operate on such a scale, while also violating the royal charter that was issued to the Hudson's Bay Company a century previous. While all of this was going on with the Hudson's Bay Company, there was also a bitter feud brewing in the upper echelon of the Northwest Company. The problems arose when McTavish brought in several members of his family into the company regardless of their ability as fur traders or businessmen. This included having his brother-in-law overseeing a lower Red River trading post, while his nephews William and Duncan McGilvery began to learn the business. William was being groomed by his uncle to take over as the director of the company. The ambition of McTavish and his decision to appoint family members to key positions caused a divide in the company that led those who disagreed with McTavish to form the XY Company, named after the mark used on the bales of furs. In 1799, Alexander McKenzie, by then considered a hero explorer, left the Northwest Company to join XY and become the effective head of the firm. Over the next four years, the two companies were deep rivals, while the Northwest Company was already in a bitter feud with the Hudson's Bay Company. When McTavish died in 1804, William McGilray took over, and his first task was ending the four years of rivalry that existed between the two companies. This rivalry had, by this point, become extremely heated. At one point, the master of the Northwest Company post at Great Bear Lake had been shot by an XY employee during an argument. This would lead to the Canada Jurisdiction Act, which extended the law of Quebec into the Western Canada region. The XY Company had built several posts close to both posts of the Northwest Company as well as the Hudson's Bay Company, cutting into profits of both companies. Nonetheless, McGilvray was successful with crafting a new agreement in 1804 that gave the Northwest Company 75% of the shares in the merger, while the XY Company partners would get 25%. Due to his jumping ship to the rival company, McKenzie was excluded from the partnership. With the rivalry between the XY and Northwest finished, the company began to expand under McGilvery and to profit during the first part of the 1800s. The competition with the Hudson's Bay Company continued to be fierce, limiting profits for both companies. In 1806, Napoleon Bonaparte ordered a blockade of the Baltic Sea to bring Britain to its knees. Almost all of the timber Britain used came from the Baltic countries in the United States, but 
Tensions were growing between the United States and Britain, which would culminate in war half a decade later. In 1809, the American government passed the Non-Intercourse Act, which stopped nearly all trade with Britain. As a result, Britain became reliant on Canada for its timber. And timber and wood became the number one export of Canada, replacing furs and decreasing their value, hurting the bottom line of the Northwest Company. Problems continued to plague the Northwest Company when, in 1810, the beaver fur industry began to collapse because of the over-harvesting of animals. In 1811, the fifth Earl of Selkirk, Thomas Douglas, convinced shareholders in the Hudson's Bay Company to grant him the Selkirk concession. It was his hope that it would become the district of Assiniboia, and he planned to create an agricultural colony there. The area covered southern Manitoba, northern Minnesota, eastern North Dakota, and portions of Ontario, South Dakota, and Saskatchewan. This would begin to lead further to the demise of the company. With a branch in New York City, the company began working closely with John Astor, since the Northwest Company used American ships to get past British monopolies. This collaboration began to cause problems, since Astor was a lot like McTavish, and this created a rivalry between McGilvery and Astor over the westerly expansion of the Columbia River Basin. Astor owned the Pacific Fur Company, and with the company he established Fort Astoria at the mouth of the Columbia, beating the Northwest Company to get to the area. The sea otter population soon collapsed, and with the British looking likely to seize the fort during the War of 1812, Astor sold it to the Northwest Company in 1813. The fort would be returned to the United States in 1817 and renamed Fort George by the company, and would continue to operate until it was replaced by Fort Vancouver several years later. Following the surrender of Fort Astoria, Duncan McDougall was given a 1/100 share in the company. In the War of 1812, the Northwest Company Fort of Sault Ste. Marie was destroyed by the Americans, creating another serious problem for the company. Following the war, the United States would not let Canadian traders freely across the northern border, which reduced border trade and furs. Then, in 1814, the Pemmican Proclamation was issued to stop the Métis people of the Red River District in the area that Thomas Douglas received from the Hudson's Bay Company from exporting pemmican. This was done to guarantee supplies for the Hudson's Bay Company. The Northwest Company considered this monopolizing the commodity. This would lead to the Pemmican War. Despite the war that would last until 1821, modern Canadians know very little about it. The war was fought between the Northwest Company and the Métis and the Hudson's Bay Company and the Selkirk Settlers. This war would be a series of skirmishes that Red River Pelican was vital to the Northwest Company. The Hudson's Bay Company imported most of its provisions from England itself. You may also be wondering what pemmican is. It is dried buffalo meat pounded into powder and mixed with buffalo fat and leather bags. The Northwest Company would trade with several outposts in the Red River District for this substance. Needless to say, the Red River pemmican was vital to the Northwest Company, and without it, the company could not feed its employees. William McGilvery, chief partner of the Northwest Company, said in court that the company could not function without it. In the new colony created by Selkirk, provisions were scarce, and it was decided that the provisions like pemmican simply could not leave the district. As a result, Governor MacDonald issued that Pemmican proclamation on January 8, 1814. The Northwest Company decided to ignore the proclamation, and Governor MacDonald was obliged to enforce it as a result. MacDonald responded through blockades, which only raised tensions and resistance from the Northwest Company. Métis leader and clerk with the Northwest Company, Cutbirth Grant, established a Métis camp only a few kilometers from the Hudson's Bay headquarters of Point Douglas. He established the camp there to cover the departure of 42 colonists traveling for Canada in Northwest Company canoes. Eventually, Grant and his men would begin to harass Selkirk settlers to the area, and occasionally gunfire would ring out between the two sides. 
In June 1815, Macdonald would surrender to the Northwest Company representatives, who sent him to Montreal to be tried for illegally confiscating pemmican. Not surprisingly, he never faced charges in court. The war would reach its climax on June 19, 1816 with the Battle of Seven Oaks. Now, this was not an epic battle of thousands of men, but rather 65 men on the Northwest side and 28 men on the Hudson's Bay side. By the end of the battle, the Northwest Company was victorious with only one casualty compared to 21 for the Hudson's Bay Company. On August 12, 1816, Selkirk and 90 soldiers arrived and captured Northwest Company headquarters at Fort William. The men there were arrested on charges of murder and tried in York in 1818, but they were acquitted. But the damage had been done within the Northwest Company, and many of its wealthiest partners began to leave the company, worried about its future. In 1820, the company began to issue coinage, with one copper token equaling the value of one beaver pelt. But things continued to decline, and unfortunately in 1821, it was decided the company would merge with the Hudson's Bay Company. This merger was given without much choice since Henry Bathurst, the Secretary of War and the Colonies, ordered the company to stop all hostilities. In July 1821, the merger was signed, and the Northwest Company name would no longer be used after 40 years of existence. At the time of its merger, the company had 97 forts compared to 76 owned by the Hudson's Bay Company. Within a few years, under the leadership of George Simpson, there would be a reduction in forts to reduce redundancy. The two companies each had assets valued at £200,000 or £18.4 million today. The new company would operate under the old name of Hudson's Bay Company and would become the most powerful fur trading entity in the world. And thus ended the Northwest Company. But we aren't going to end our story there. There are many famous individuals who worked for the Northwest Company during its existence, so let's look at some of those individuals. In addition, we will look at the forts and what they would become one day. John Finley was a fur trader and explorer who was most known for establishing the first fur trading post in British Columbia. He would join Alexander Mackenzie on his trip across the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Ocean in 1792-93, and in 1794 he was placed in charge of the Athabasca Department of the company. He would establish Rocky Mountain Fort, which became Fort St. John, which is today the oldest continuously inhabited European-founded settlement in British Columbia. He would retire from the company in 1804. Simon Fraser was one of Canada's greatest explorers and fur traders. He would chart much of British Columbia, and by 1805 he oversaw all operations of the Northwest Company to the west of the Rockies. He would explore what is today called the Fraser River, and it's because of him, partly, that Canada's boundary with the United States has been established at the 49th parallel. His exploits were well known enough that he was offered a knighthood, but he turned it down. John Stewart was a fur trader who became a partner with the Northwest Company and chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company. He would explore British Columbia with Simon Fraser from 1805 to 1808, and Stewart River and Stewart Lake are named for him. James McDougall was an explorer who was a third in command on the team of Simon Fraser, serving as a clerk to John Stewart. He would eventually become the first European to find and travel in the Checo River. He would also construct Fort St. James at Stewart Lake, which would become the headquarters of the New Caledonia Department of the Northwest Company. John Johnston was a highly successful fur trader for the Northwest Company at Sault Ste. Marie, who was also a leader in the Michigan Territory of the United States. During the War of 1812, he would assist the British, and following the war, his income was crippled due to the prohibition on fur traders crossing the border freely. His biggest accomplishment was likely that he served as a commissioner in 1821 during the negotiations between the Northwest Company and Hudson's Bay Company, leading to the merger. Next to Alexander Mackenzie, and in my opinion he is next to no one when it comes to exploring, is David Thompson. My favourite Canadian historical figure, he would travel 90,000 kilometres across the continent, mapping 4.9 million kilometres. Today he is called the greatest land geographer that has ever lived. 
1797, he would defect from the employment of the Hudson's Bay Company to join the Northwest Company. He would walk 130 kilometers in the snow to the nearest Northwest Company fort, where he was immediately hired on as a surveyor for the company. This was not taken well by the Hudson's Bay Company, where it was customary to provide one-year notice. For Thompson, what mattered to him was the Northwest Company was supporting his work as a surveyor. His first task with the company was to survey part of the Canada-U.S. boundary along the water routes of Lake Superior to Lake of the Woods. In the coming years, he would explore much of the Canadian West and establish a post at what would be Lac La Viche. He would become a full partner with the company in 1804, and in 1806, he was sent back to the interior of the continent due to concerns about the Lewis and Clark expedition looking for a route to the Pacific. This would lead him on his Columbia River travels, where he would establish various posts throughout what would be Montana, Idaho, Washington, and Western Canada. He would become the first European to navigate the full length of the Columbia River, and he would retire with a full pension from the Northwest Company, and he would complete his great map that covered a wide area of Lake Superior to the Pacific. The map was so accurate that it was still being used by the Canadian government a hundred years later. Sadly, most of his money would be lost in 1825 when the Northwest Company agent McGillivray Thane and Company went bankrupt. Most of his remaining wealth was invested in land, and he was mostly unsuccessful in making money off the land he owned. To find income elsewhere, he would invest in a potash production company and two general stores, but all of these failed. In February 10, 1857, he died in poverty and obscurity. Charlotte, his lifelong companion, died three months later. As for the Northwest Company, through the 40 years of the company's existence, several forts would be established to become important communities across Canada. Cold Lake was the location of a post for the Northwest Company, which would one day become the community in northeast Alberta that is home to one of the most important Canadian forces based in the country. Fort Chippewan is one of the oldest European settlements in Alberta after it was established by Peter Pond of the Northwest Company in 1788. The community was once the home of a library with over 2,000 books after it was established in 1790, and had become one of the most famous libraries in Rupert's Land. Sir John Franklin of the Franklin Expedition would set out on an overland Arctic journey from Fort Chippewan. Today, it's home to 852 people. Fort Fraser was established in 1806 by Simon Fraser at the base of Fraser Mountain near Vanderhoof, British Columbia. Today is the home of 500 people, and has one of the oldest agricultural fairs in the country. Fort Gibraltar was established by Alexander Macdonald in 1809 at the confluence of the Red and Assiniboine Rivers. After the merge of the Hudson's Bay Company and Northwest Company, it would be renamed Fort Gary, and it eventually become the city of Winnipeg, the capital city of Manitoba. Fort Nelson was established in 1805 and named for Horatio Nelson. It would move several times and during the Second World War would serve as an airbase for the United States Air Force. It would also be where the construction of the Alaska Highway would begin. Fort St. James was established by Simon Fraser in 1806 and would become an important Hudson's Bay Company fort in 1821. Today it has a population of 1,600 people. Fort William was established in 1803 and would become part of the Hudson's Bay Company in 1821. The fort would be abandoned for a time before the pursuit of resources would open it up again. Over time it would become the community of Thunder Bay, home to 100,000 people. Green Lake was established in what would one day be northern Saskatchewan in 1793, and now it's a hamlet of 418 people. Fort Vermillion was established by the Northwest Company in 1788 and became home to 727 people, including a former premier of Alberta. And Rocky Mountain House was established in 1799 by the Northwest Company, while the Hudson's Bay Company established a fort nearby. The fort would operate until 1875 when it was closed, but the community would remain and is now home to 6,635 people. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Northwest Company. 
Information from HBC Heritage, CBC, Canadian Encyclopedia, Biography, and Wikipedia. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes.